Welcome to the I Believe Podcast, an Acure Insight production, brought to you by Castle Biosciences. I'm your host, Danae Peterson, a fellow ocular melanoma survivor. Here on the podcast, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatments, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Castle Biosciences tests are designed to provide clinicians precise and personalized tumor information for the benefit of patient care. If you would like more information about how Castle is transforming the treatment of eye cancer, visit castletestinfo.com. Hi, you guys, and welcome back to the I Believe podcast. I'm here with a special guest who is a fellow cancer survivor and also an author of the book Melanoma. It started with a freckle, and his name is David Stanley. So, David, welcome to the show. Danette, so nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And I'm going to just like stab myself in the foot here, but um, it's Danae, <laughs> not your fault. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's Danae, but just in case it. anyone else is listening who's staring and, you know, doesn't know how to say my name, your name's a little easier than mine. So that's good. So how are you today? I am just, I'm great, actually. My, I have an anniversary here in a couple days. And for an early anniversary present, my wife and I went to uh, Wharton Center on the Michigan State campus. And we saw Emmanuel Axe, Yo-Yo Ma, and the violinist uh, Leonidas uh, Cavatos playing Beethoven symphonies that they rewrote for a trio. And it was just, uh, it, was, it was magic. Even if you don't like classical music, the soul that these guys have and the joy they have, the three of them playing together, it was, it was, you could like feel it in the room. It was, it was an amazing evening. So I'm great. No, that sounds so awesome. It was very cool. I, I'm glad it was so fun. So fun. All right. So can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little more about your story and your journey with melanoma. I know like just for our audience, you know, we are all dealing with ocular melanoma, which is a rare eye cancer, but you had a, the more kind of more typical melanoma. Yeah, so I go ahead did. and just tell us a little more about your diagnosis journey and, right. and how that has played out. It. I'll start real quick at the beginning. When I was younger, I raced bicycles for a living. And I also spent a lot of time living in Texas and training in Texas. And so this was in the 80s, because as you can see, I'm, you know, I'm six, I just turned 65. And so lots of time in the sun, no awareness of skin cancer, no awareness of skin protection. The idea was to get as brown as possible, as quickly as possible, because that way you looked like a real bike racer who was logging long hours in the sun. And of course, over time, that takes its toll. And in about 2006, I got a thing about the size of a pencil right here, a pencil eraser, I should say. And my doctor did the biopsy. It came back in situ, which is you know, great. I mean, it's like the unmelted chocolate chip, you know, because melanoma in general, dermal melanoma, spreads by sending out little cellular runners. So they took it out. One year later, my wife leans in. She's a nurse. And I think, oh, she's going to kiss me. It's dinner. Great. Cool. You know? And she's like, there's something wrong with your uh, suture line. I'm like, what are you talking about? She goes, it's back, it's gray and brown, and it's way bigger. And I was like, oh, this sucks. Yeah. And she said, uh, you need to get that taken care You need to get that looked at. And so I called my dermatologist and he said, well, you know, I do keep a 6.30 a.m. appointment open for emergencies. He's an early morning guy. And I oh said- Oh that's so yeah. early. Yeah. And I said, Walt- I will be there in your parking lot at six o'clock when you pull up. <laughs> well, you know, doctors' lives, they start pretty early anyway. And that's the only way you could get work done was to come into the office from six to seven and start seeing patients, you know, at seven, seven thirty, because dermatology is a very low on the totem pole 
specialty for a lot of people. Uh, they, you can't make nearly as much money as a, as a derm as you could being a cardiac surgeon. So a lot of guys will go into, a lot of people will go into other specialties. So he saw it, he did the biopsy, it came back. I got sent to U of M. Uh, they have a multidisciplinary melanoma center. I live in Flint, by the way. And so Ann Arbor is just an hour down the road, no big deal. And it's a great town. I mean, if you got to have cancer, you know, having to go to Ann Arbor once every couple of weeks or so, as I did for that summer, it's pretty cool. They did what was called a square procedure. And what they do is they, based essentially on a little bit of guesswork and a lot of knowledge, they etch a little tiny line all the way around wherever your lesion is, and they put in some tattoo dye. And then they send those four strips from that square off to the lab. They're read by the pathologist. Uh, and if they need to send it out further in order to get clean margins, they do. And once they get four clean margins, they schedule you for surgery. And I had a, I think it was about a four and a half or five hour procedure where they essentially scrape all the way down to the bone, all the way out to the margins. And my, my ultimate scar actually starts about here. It goes down in front of my ear like this, and then back up and behind. And it looks like a giant square root sign. But I had a, uh, yeah, I had a plastic surgeon who did a postdoc in uh, melanoma surgery. And you can't tell. I mean, my wife, you know, wow. this is 15 years later, 18 years later, my wife can't hardly see the suture line because the guy was so good. And so that's definitely, you know, wherever you are in your, mel in your skin cancer, your melanoma, your uveal, go where they do a lot of them. And go where they have, you know, the absolute best. There, there is a lot to be said for repetition in any line of work. We get better at it the more we do it. And it doesn't mean you get careless or lazy or anything. It means that you've seen everything that there is to see. Because as my surgeon uh, said to me, he goes, mate, he was from New Zealand. He said, mate, he said, your first shot is your best shot. And he said, if we have to do any kind of revisions or we have to, it comes back you know, in a year, the out, you're not going to like the outcome nearly so much. So they took, you know, very wide margins and a lot of skin. Essentially, I lost about, I got an envelope here, this much off the side of my face. That's a lot. Folded over business envelope. And what he did was, is he pulled all that skin up. And so I actually had like a facelift at the age of 48 or so on the side of my face. It didn't stay that way, of course, because they don't anchor it or anything. But, uh, and here we are. It's 2024. And I've had two, bi two other biopsies on my face, both negative in all that time. This was in 2007, all this work. And I had one biopsy on my wrist, right above my cycling glove. And that's been negative. So I'm, I lead a charmed life. We got it early. When it came back, we got it early. I got really good care, really fast. Uh, I got to meet Ben Bailey, the guy from Cash Cab, when I was having lunch at Zingerman's, the famous restaurant in Ann Arbor, uh, after one of my surgeries. So that was pretty cool. You know, all things considered, uh, when, I, when I'm in my melanoma groups online, talking to my friends who are just, you know, fighting that fight day after day, I am so, I'm, I'm not lucky. I mean, a lot of things came together. Good care. My wife's a nurse. You know, you can think of that as luck if you want. Uh, you know, I jumped on it right away. A lot of things came together, and I'm very fortunate.
Well, I'm so glad to hear that. And I really appreciate you sharing. Uh, and it's unique for us, you know, as eye cancer patients to hear about kind of what your story was like, because it is yeah. so different. But I also know we do have members of our community who deal with both skin cancer and uveal melanoma. Yes. They sometimes come hand in hand or one after the other. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And um, and for just kind of bringing your humor to it. I felt like that was, <laughs> you, you definitely um, have a way of, of telling the story. So you then eventually you, you wrote this book, right? Called right. Melanoma. It started with a freckle. So yeah. maybe tell us a little about what led sure. you to wanting to write that book. Well, I'm, I'm a science guy by training. Uh, my undergrad degree is in zoology. I, I taught high school sciences. Uh, actually, this all happened when I was actually uh, a high school science teacher. And I talk about the effect of it on my students uh, in, the, in the book a lot too. And um, I just lost my train of thought. What? Help me out here. I was thinking ahead and I forgot oh, to be so, in the moment. I mean, just, just starting, <laughs> starting to write the book. <laughs> oh, right. Thank you. Uh, like, so I realized after I got it, it was about 2010, that I had a pretty interesting story. Now, I tried to sell it to 71 different agents and publishing companies before I found one that took it on, began publishing, because one agent said to me, and he was very nice, uh, he actually called to say, I'm not interested, which is rare. He said, I think you're going to have a tough time selling this. He said, it's really good. He said, but you're not famous and nobody dies. And I thought to myself, <laughs> all, oh, the, all the things, right? Like, okay, yeah. why does why does it have to be one or the other, right? Why do, right? why do you have to be famous or have it end in tragedy, like right. for it to be a, a story yeah. worth telling? So yeah. I just so, I love the person, the perseverance here. Yeah. So I, I sat, you know, I sat down and I kept pitching and I kept pitching because what got me to write this book is so much of why I got melanoma was ignorance and youthful hubris. You know, when you're 26 and you're a really good athlete in any sport, you know, look at the way football players behave off the off the off the floor a lot of times. Or basketball players, we are bulletproof, right? You know, they go th they they train ungodly hard, uh, and they think they can't be hurt. And so, even if skin even if skin cancer had been a blip on my radar, even if there was the awareness then, like there is today, of the importance of sunscreen. I like to think I might use it, but I don't know. So I decided, you know, this would be a really good warning shot across the bow of a whole lot of people. Uh, and I had no idea the how many people I would actually touch with this because, you know, I get, especially the first three, four years after it came out, I was getting an email every probably two or three days from, I got a skin check because uh, my mom gave me your book and it turns out I have squamous cell, which is you know, no skin cancer is good, but if you got to have it as a younger person, squamous cell on your face is a hell of a lot better than melanoma. So a lot of the book was, I wanted to write a book. This was a really good story. Uh, I thought I could do good in the community and that's, you know, the cancer community and the, like the youthful person community that I can't, that I used to be a part of. <laughs> so um, yeah. it, it really was the fact that uh, I thought I had a good story and I thought I could help some people out. And I sat down and one over the course of a summer, three months really, uh, I knocked out the first two drafts and then started pitching it and then found somebody to publish it. Like I said, McGann Publishing. And also it's, um, I, I do audiobooks as a side hustle and I narrated the audiobook version of it too, if you're an audiobook person. Okay, there you go. 
Well, I know um, I love audiobooks. Um, they're definitely they're definitely fun to listen to, especially when you have the author who is reading the story or reading, you know, what they wrote, because obviously then it's your voice, <laughs> um, not just somebody trying to adopt your voice, which is very <laughs> unique. So um, we talked a little bit before, you know, before our interview right. today, we talked a little about how one of the main focuses in your book is just really addressing living, like living fully in the face of the fear. And obviously our fears maybe are around different circumstances for different things, right? You know, we're afraid of eye cancer coming back. We don't maybe necessarily even have a causative, a causative, um, I'm saying that wrong, but like we don't necessarily have a definitive cause yet for what exactly causes eye cancer for uveal melanoma patients. And so there's just a lot of uncertainty that we grapple with, but, but I think you know that like, because cancer yeah. patients deal with some level of uncertainty all of the time. Yeah. Um, so talk to us a little about, you know, what did you write in your book and what was important for you yeah. to share about just addressing this fear of recurrence, uh, this fear of really just fear of everything. Yeah. The scanxiety is, is real, right? Uh, we, we get that scan anxiety. Um, I still get it. Like I said, you know, I had a couple biopsies, you know, I've really never been threatened uh, with a recurrence of the melanoma because all the, those three biopsies I had, the doc said, well, I need to biopsy this, but I'm, you know, I don't think you have anything to worry about. And I trust my doctors because so far, you know, if they've said, we need to be concerned about this, uh, we're concerned. Um, but the fear factor is real. You know, we like to think you know, as rational human beings, that our feelings are not facts. You know, that's a common trope out there. Well, you know, so you're letting yourself get all bugged about by this and, you know, but hey, that's just a feeling and that's not a fact. That's not how it really is. Well, it is and it isn't because fear is really real. You know, we have um, this heart versus head dichotomy that goes on in our brain all the time when we have cancer, right? You know, our head is telling us, well, the doctor said not to worry about this. And I've had, you know, a dozen scans in the last few years and they've all been fine. And at the same time, you know, at the back of your brain in that reptilian brain we all have, it's saying, screw that, let's get the fuck out of here. You know, <laughs> you're, you're terrified. Uh, and, and in the book, I, I talk about a few moments of terror that I had in there. I scared the bejesus out of um, a resident or a postdoc in the dermatology clinic. My, the guy who was doing all my biopsies for the square procedure was a fellow named Matt Ludgate. Like I said, he was from New Zealand. Big, tall, blonde guy. Looked like he rode crew in college. Very handsome man. And this short, dark, uh, dark-haired uh, resident walks in and starts typing at the workstation in the corner of my room. And I lost my shit. I absolutely did. Uh, what I was like, you're not my doctor. You're not Dr. Ludgate. What are you doing in here? And he was just... and. I'm not a big guy, but I'm pretty wide. You know, like I look like a, a high school wrestler, I guess, more than anything else. And I like bounced out of my chair and he took, literally took off running down the hall. Like he took three steps towards, backwards towards the door, turned and started trotting the other way. Cause I, I think I looked that scary. And my wife is in the room with me and she's like, oh, Dave, what were you doing? What were you thinking? I'm like, I don't know. I just knew that only Dr. Ludgate is doing my biopsies. And this is a 45-year-old man. I've got a wife. I have children. I'm a coach of a high school team. I've got class. I got all the responsibilities in the world. And I'm terrified because a doctor stopped in my exam room to check on something on the computer workstation. And when Dr. Ludgate came in, he just chewed me a new asshole. He really did. Uh, he's like, you know, I can't have you doing that stuff here, mate. He said, I know you're scared. He said, but you got to figure out how to keep this under control. I said, do you want me to go uh, 
apologize to him? He said, no, I most definitely do not want you to apologize to him. I'll take care of that. You stay right where you are. Right. Okay, I will stay right here. Uh, the fear is real, and you can try to yeah. beat it down as best as you can. But this is the this is one of the best things you can ever realize about fear is that when you welcome that fear in, it loses a lot of its power. Uh, you know, we all have anxiety in our daily lives. You know, we're worried about, oh my God, what if that you know I don't get that check in time to pay those bills, and then I'm going to be. That anxiety is can be just, you know, uh, if, I think it's a little addictive for starters. I think some people thrive on feeling that anxiety. And the other is it can be really debilitating. And the best thing I think you can do is when you have that fear, whether it's a uveal melanoma exam that you have coming up and you're scared that maybe you've got some mets or it's just spread a little bit uh, or melanoma, when you welcome that fear and you go, all right, I'm scared. This could be really shitty. This could be fine. I'm scared about these possible outcomes. When you let that in, it loses a lot of its power because then it's a known thing versus an unknown thing. And that's one of the things I figured out along the way. We, you know, we are much more scared of the unknown than we ever are of the known. I mean, you and I both know that at some point in our lives, we're going to die. You know, me probably before you because I'm 65 and I don't, you're, you're much younger than me, but we, we realize that. And so a, a lot of it, once you realize that thing too, that, you know, there is an end to all of this, it's just hopefully, you know, we're 85, 90 years old and we're in bed and it's painless. And then you go, yeah, I had a good run. But that unknown fear that maybe our life is going to get snatched from us far, far too early. And what's going to happen with my kids? What's going to happen with my spouse? Those unknown fears are very difficult to deal with. Uh, so you have to kind of welcome that fear in and just say, all right, I'm just going to be scared for a while. You know, like as some people call it a pity party, there's really nothing wrong with that. Um, there are many ways, you know, to be a cancer warrior. And sometimes it's flipping cancer the bird as you get rolled into the MRI machine. And sometimes, you know, it's just like laying in a heap in the bottom of the shower with the water pouring down on you, crying your eyes out. And I've done both, <laughs> you know, yeah. I have done both. Oh, I love that. That's so funny. So funny. Oh my goodness. All right. So, um, what about like, I know, I know this is maybe a little more unique to the, um, the melanoma community and, you know, you guys have a little more definitive cause around some types of melanoma that do, yeah. you know, show that being in the sun and the extra UV rays, those things can be cause, um, causing the melanoma to, to like grow. Um, and so then you have people who, you know, are wearing sunscreen all the time. Maybe they're, they're wearing clothes that are covering their entire body and maybe afraid to go outside to begin with. Um, how, how do you feel like you have personally handled some of these, these kinds of fears that come up around maybe the cause or the unknown causes when you don't right. really know exactly what causes it that and you're is, just afraid of everything? That is such a, yeah, a phobophobia, fear of everything. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word, but I think uh, it should be if it's not. Yeah, that's a real thing. We get in, to make up words here. It's fine. Okay, cool. Uh, that's a real thing in the melanoma community. Uh, you know, people are terrified to, I know people who are scared to death to leave their home. They want, you know, 99% UV and IR protection on their automobile wind uh, everywhere on their auto. They, well, you know, I think part of that needs to be addressed rationally. Uh, one For one thing, um, a lot of the damage has been done, you know, uh, whether it's through the sunbed, 
you know, the, uh, the tanning booth that you laid in all those years when you were in high school and college, um, you know, this, the damage that we did when we were 24, often, unless it's really severe damage, like from a sunbed, and I can't not believe that, you know, you can still sell those things as like a healthy alternative to a tan because there is no such thing as a healthy tan. Um, but a lot of that damage has already been done. And so you um, you have to uh, adopt the mindset that says, "All right, I did a lot of I did a lot of dumb shit when I was younger. You know, I tanned. I didn't wear sunscreen when I was water skiing for two hours a day all summer long on on summer break. All right, I can't solve that problem, but but I'll make it better and livable for the rest of my life. And then you just adopt the same simple kinds of things that." we do anyway. You know, like you said, wearing the sunscreen, wearing the hat, um, you know, the skin around your eyes is really sensitive to sunburn and and melanomas. Uh, and, and to your point, you know, UV, UV melanoma, not so much caused by ultraviolet radiation. And just use the same common sense kinds of things that uh, everybody else in the community should be doing. Now, if you're too scared to be that person, you know, to say, all right, I'm putting on my long sleeves, you know, I'm putting on my hat and I'm going to go out in my shades. I'm going to go dig in the garden. If you just physically can't do it, you, I think either find a buddy to help walk you through it because a cancer buddy is a really nice thing to have because you hardly, I mean, 40% of us are going to get some kind of cancer. So hardly anybody is going to go through life without some sort of cancer. So find a cancer buddy and somebody, and hopefully someone who has your same kind of, that you can share those, those fears with, and you can talk each other down when you need to. And if it's really, really bad, really debilitating therapy, and, and it's so much easier these days to get, uh, to get in touch with a, a quality therapist who can help you, you know, focus on why you're so scared, what you can do to man. I mean, there's tools, right? We all have these tools in the toolbox. We don't know it, but a good therapist can help you find those tools to manage those fears so that you can get back to living your normal life. So those, and I also do think, and you mentioned this briefly early, I do think mindfulness is a very big help for learning to accept your fears where, so you can sit there and put yourself in a position where you can say, all right, I'm really scared. I know this isn't rational, but that doesn't make it go away. All right, let's just kind of, and, and you know, concentrate on your breathing and talk yourself, learn to talk yourself down. I think it's called, um, I think they do a lot with airplane uh, uh, travel uh, issues. Cognitive behavioral therapy, I think is what it's called, uh, CBT. And they teach you how to manage your brain a little bit and bring yourself down from those kinds of issues. Yeah, it's such a powerful tool. And we actually just had, um, I guess you probably wouldn't have, have seen it, but we did just have a, a seminar this last weekend called the Ion Mental Health Seminar. Cool. And we had one of the, the therapists from the community actually come and talk about various different therapy modalities. But like you, you know, just to your point of mindfulness, um, what would you say to someone who maybe they struggle with that idea of like, oh, well, I just, I can't meditate or, you know, like maybe they have a very set definition of what is mindfulness. So um, what are some of the ways that you define mindfulness in your book and in your life that help just help kind of broaden the possibilities there? I would do a couple other things then. And I also know some people of certain religions uh, where they don't feel comfortable 
uh, because they feel it's got something, you know, it's like anti-religious. And that's, if that's their belief, they still have cancer. They still deserve the same compassion, right? Uh, journaling is huge. And your, I, I suspect one of your therapists, I'm sure, talked about journaling. Because when you write down all of those feelings and where the feelings are coming from, and then you can look at it and you can go, you know, if I, because you, you read this stuff and you go, huh, if I do this, in my life, then this and this might not be nearly so terrifying. I think journaling is a hugely powerful tool for cancer survivors, for cancer warriors, for cancer people like us. Uh, I mm-hmm. I think a lot of my book, actually, as I'm thinking back on it, some of those chapters I wrote long before I considered turning it into a full-size book. Um, I think that I, a lot of that was journaling stuff that uh, because I'm a writer, I mean, as well, I've got a couple other books out and I've got a novel actually that I'm pitching to agents right now, uh, but that's kind of off the subject. Um, I think journaling is an immensely powerful tool and I don't think nearly enough people who who have cancer issues um, are, are doing it. I also would recommend pets if you're a pet sort of person. Uh, there is nothing quite like having a dog or a cat on your lap when you feel really miserable and really scared and talking to your pet. Uh, there's something about holding a, a, another mammal uh, and talking to them and having them listen to you. And nobody can listen as unjudgmentally as your dog, right? Cats are different. I know cats Cats will judge the <laughs> I know, hell cats out are of judging. you. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> but... Uh, even so, cat uh, cats are pretty cool. I mean, I'm not a cat guy per se, but I've seen a lot of cat behavior with people that's really, really intriguing. Uh, so, you know, a pet is a terrific way to do it. And it also gives you uh, something, someone to focus on that's not your husband or your wife, uh, that's not your kids, because pets are a little needy in a way, but not in a way that our children and our family are. Uh so I think a pet is a great, great way to do it. Um, I would also thoroughly recommend music. I have a, a story. I, our neighbor, when my son was little, when he was seven, uh, he became friends with the guy with the family next door, and um, the guy's name was Arnie, and he came down with horrible liver cancer. It was going to kill him very, very quickly, and. Uh, Aaron was, like I said, he was seven and he was going over there all the time to visit Arnie. Arnie, they didn't have any grandchildren. They, uh, He died before any of his grandkids were born. And Arnie loved opera. He was a New York guy, grew up in the city. Arnie loved opera. And I remember being over there one time and he asked me to put on this Pavarotti CD. And, and he was really close to the end. So I put in the Pavarotti and, you know, he's singing and his, I mean, I'm not a big opera fan, but his voice was just so soulful and big. And Arnie was in this chair. He couldn't get out of his chair anymore. He was going to die within the week. And I watched him lean back in the chair. I watched his eyes close. And he was in so much pain before that and in such a bad place mentally because he was going to die before his grandchildren. He was only 71 when he died. And you could just watch all of that just fade from his face as he got sucked into the music. And it doesn't have to be opera, of course. It's whatever your thing is. Uh, but music is a really powerful tool. And I don't think we use it nearly enough. I mean, we certainly use it, you know, oh, I got to listen to this. You know, I got to listen to Eminem, Lose Yourself, before I go into the weight room. Well, that's cool. And I like Eminem as much as the next guy. But that's not going to soothe your soul quite like if you're an opera buff, the way listening to Pavarotti would. 
So I also would recommend music. And lastly, I would really recommend getting outside, if at all possible. Uh, I know in in the cities, it's not always easy because sometimes it's a schlep to get to the park, but maybe you can go sit on the front stoop or, you know, maybe on a bench down the street, you know, or whatever, and try, even if it's just walking a little, if that's all you're capable of, because I know, you know, cancer, sometimes it's way too much to even get out of bed. Uh, I had a friend who, this is kind of a funny story. He was, he had, He's no longer with us, but uh, a bike racing friend. And he was dying of cancer, uh, pancreatic cancer. And he, bike racers are data driven. We love, like runners, we love to keep track of you know, my pace per mile and whatever. He was walking across his bedroom, which was all of maybe... I don't know, six yards. He was keeping track of his times, how long it took him to walk from the bed to the wall and back to the bed. And that gave him so much solace because in a in a crazy world where he had no control anymore over what was going to happen to him, he could still control that he could push himself like he used to when he was healthy and keep track and see whether he was, you know, gaining or losing uh, in this in this exercise battle. So, uh, even the littlest bits of exercise, if you can do it, is just it's refreshing. Uh, the endorphins in our bodies, they're endocannabinoids, every bit as much as other kinds of cannabinoids. They are really, really powerful at mood elevators. And if there's one thing all cancer patients share is uh, we need some mood elevation, that's for sure. Because it's, yeah, it's a depressing as hell disease, that's for sure. I, I think that's the next big step actually in cancer treatment is not just addressing the disease with, you know, whether it's Optivo or Keytruda or immunotherapy or what gene therapy or whatever. I think it's when you get a cancer diagnosis, you need to be evaluated to whether you should be on some kind of antidepressant medication because that might help you live a, a better life as you're going through your treatment process. But uh, that's, you know, I don't have any personal well, that's experience. That's such a good with that. point that. No, it's it's such a good point though, and that is something that so many so many cancer patients struggle with is that that kind of place where we you know we get to such a heavy level of uncertainty that we almost drown in it, and and if we don't come back up and we don't surface from you know that kind of pit of despair so to speak, um, That's true. then it can definitely lead to things like you know chronic depression that does need to be addressed with therapy or if need be with you know with um, medication prescribed by a doctor, uh, but. Just, I think that, I think that one of the most validating things that you said is just this idea that, that, um, and I'm going to kind of mess up exactly how you said it, but it was essentially just that, that it really is so normal and human to have the fear, to feel it in your body. And on the flip side, that it also is possible to get through it. It's possible to navigate it. It's possible to learn things that you maybe didn't know, to learn skills you didn't know, um, before this point that you maybe never had to learn because you never confronted a fear of this level. Um, but I think that it's, it's just such a, a validating thing to, to be able to, to talk to someone else who, who understands and who has maybe utilized those tools and resources, knows they exist, knows they're helpful, but also understands that, you know, it's a process to get there and it's, it's a human process to get there and it's really okay. Let me say something real quick too, that I meant to say earlier uh, and it slipped my mind. Toxic people. We have a lot of, we all, you know, we like them in our lives sometimes when we're healthy. Uh, you know, maybe they're they're interesting, they're fun, they're, you know, they help the basketball team or the bowling team score, you know, score a few runs, if baskets, you know, a spare here or there. But when you get sick, uh, when you have cancer, those toxic people can just 
really mess you up because all of a sudden their toxicity isn't so easily shrugged away to and you know as you look at whatever good point characteristics they have that you have kept them in your life now because you realize I don't got that much life you know I mean I get the chemo I sleep for like two days I get up I throw up for a day and a half I get the chemo again you know I don't have time for their for their BS anymore one of the best things you can do. And let me tell you, does it feel good? <laughs> and I'm laughing as I'm saying this, but trust me, is to get those toxic people out of your life. You don't have to explain to them. You don't have to rationalize to you. You, know, you can just point blank say, look, I have cancer. You're really bad for me. We're done. And you walk away. Man, I'm telling you, I'm 5'6". You feel about nine feet tall. Uh, you know, I don't, it, it sounds funny, you know, that you can have some joy in getting rid of somebody who essentially is dragging you down all the time. But we all maybe been around that person, or we certainly know somebody in the cancer community where, oh, well, you're not really sick. You don't look really sick. You know, really? Yeah. Well, here, read my chart, you know, dumbass. And uh, so, you know, when you get those people out of well, your it's, life. It's like writing yourself that permission slip to yeah. set the boundaries that you need with the Absolutely. people that maybe deserve those boundaries more right? now than ever. Yeah. yeah. It feels pretty good to get rid of those folks. Let me tell you. Uh, I didn't have too many, well, of them, unfortunately, and, but I did. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess maybe one of the caveats to that um, that maybe you can, can answer as we close would just be, okay, say you do realize there's, you know, a handful of these people who maybe they're just not the best influence. They're not, um, they're not serving you in your life the way that you would like them to. Uh, and, and I don't mean serving, you know, like, well, oh, they're you know, waiting on your hand and foot, but, no, that's but a very you know, good like that they're, they're, they're just, they're just not the kind of person that has the energy that helps you. And that is um, compassionate in the way that you need. So if, you know, those are the people that you maybe need to just spend less time with, um, whether or not you choose to fully cut ties is entirely up to you as a patient. But what happens when you have the fear, you know, addressing of addressing that of, okay, well, who's going to be left? Um, Because I think that that's one of the things that maybe some people cling to those relationships, even though they're maybe not the healthiest, even though they're frustrating, is that fear of maybe not being able to develop a new relationship. Um, So what would you say to that as far as, you know, just developing these new, new friendships in the cancer community even? It's really hard to do that. You're absolutely right. And that's a a really strong point too. It's like, I have four people in my circle. If I get rid of this guy, I'm down to three. What the hell? You know, or even worse, maybe I have two people in my circle and I get rid of this and I have one friend left. It's very, very difficult. There's no denying that. And making friends when you're spending a lot of your time at the clinic uh, and when you feel lousy a lot and you can't go out and do the things that we often do uh, to build friendships, you know, whether it's, you know, watching your kid play, you know, in the baseball team and you're sitting next to one of the parents and you become friends. uh, It's really hard. I don't know that there really is an answer. I do know that it's a lot easier now than it would have been in uh, 2000, you know, when I, when I was 40, Mm -hmm. because the world is very flat now. I have, you know, online friends from around the world, as I'm sure you do too. And thanks to things like uh, FaceTime or you know, what are we using here? Riverside FM or, you know, we actually can have face-to-face conversations because I remember when I, when we were first, you know, 
typing with ICQ chats and stuff back in the old days. Uh, you know, this you had is no all idea. before my time, apparently. I don't yes, know it what is. that is. <laughs> it, it was essentially text messaging via uh, b- by your computer. And so okay. you never saw and the, and it was very rare that you could send photos, which I guess for some people might actually be a good thing, you know, because I've seen some. Anyway, moving on. Uh, <laughs> uh, it is very hard, but we have access to a lot wider variety of people that will lift you up rather than uh, drag you down. That's for sure. Hey, so we're kind of getting to the end here, right? I'm sort of feeling that. Yes, we are. All definitely. Right. All right. So can I read something? You know, I don't know if you know I'm a poet. Um, I would love to have you read something. All right. That'd be great I, if you want to end with a poem. I, I'm trying to pull it up here on my... Ah, here we are. Here, ah, here we go. I've written... I write mostly sonnets. Um, I started writing them when my dad died like four years or so ago. Five years now? Yeah, it's five years now. All right, here we are. My computer, as uh, no surprise, is acting up. Ah, uh, there we go. Okay. And I've I wrote this one a couple years ago. And I'm kind of killing time here while I'm waiting for Microsoft Word to cooperate with me. That's okay. All right. Well, then I'm not going to freak out about it. I'm just going to do the thing here. Well, I just wanted to say, you know, as, I mean, you're going to you're going to finish with this poem, but one of the things that you said about journaling um just kind of tied into the online community and things like that. I know that there are definitely members of the, of the community in, in really any cancer area who they use social media uh, as a little bit of their journal. And so I think oh, sure. um, sometimes, yeah. you know, especially when you're dealing with so many appointments, uh, I know that that kind of, we all go in waves with our diagnosis at different stages, yep. there might be more to handle than at others. And so sometimes you don't really have the downtime or you don't feel like you have the downtime but almost all of us have a phone with us all the yep. time. So all maybe time. having a notes section in your phone um, or even just using social media as a blog, you know, have yeah. a, have a page that you use that way. Keep it private if you choose or share it um, yeah. either way. Like there's, there's really no right way to journal. And I think that just kind of expanding the idea that it doesn't have to be putting pen to paper. Um, right. There's so many applications and same yeah. with friends. It can yeah. be, like you said, it can be an online community um, and that that doesn't have any less value in this, in this space. And sometimes uh, it's even kind of similar, I would say, to uh, to having like a dog companion or a cat companion. Sometimes the the distance of not necessarily having to be in person and always getting together with this group of people can add a layer of uh, just reassurance that like, okay, I don't have to give quite as much right. because I don't have as much to give as you know in yeah. different stages as a as a cancer patient, and that's okay. Yeah, we have we have X amount of stuff to give. And some days that X is like X minus, you know, a thousand. Yeah. All right. So I got it. I got it working here. So this is sonnet number 96 and it's called live outside of fear to stare down death. One is set fully free to reach beyond the bounds of normal can even tide sun doth set. Might you not see the waking dawn sun's blessed line again. Tis epiphany. Bodhi's grandest, grandest feet to realize that all is there for you to seize. Upon you rise, ne'er can there be retreat. One sees all, a towering oaken tree. Life's greatest gift to live outside of fear. Once thou shrugs off a cloak of fraught despair. One's grand purpose is now illumined clear. Your aim is true, 
your life's work now declared. A pas de deux with death is such a gift. Pray live each moment full. Savor its kiss. David, that was beautiful. Thank you so much. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I would absolutely love to include, I know we had talked about this before, but you had mentioned a a blog post about mindfulness that we could potentially include in our show notes. And then you would also, um, if you're willing to, I would love to include uh, sonnet number 96, if we can include that in the show notes as well. I will send Um, that along. That was a very powerful powerful um, way to, to just talk about fear. So um, for everyone who's joined us live today, thank you so much. If you're listening to the recording, please make sure to hit subscribe on wherever you're listening from, be it YouTube or a podcast channel. Um, feel free to search out David on social media and look up his book. I don't think that... Um, I don't think that there's any less value in reading a book from really any cancer patient. I think that we learn from each other. We learn from these stories of resilience and just navigating this um, all in all, because it, it really is so similar in so many ways, regardless of the circumstances that lead to the diagnosis. So David, thank you so much for being with us here. Today, thank you for having me. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the I Believe podcast brought to you by Castle Biosciences. Please be sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around OM. If you have a moment, leave us a brief review or consider making a donation to the links in the show notes to keep our podcast going. Feel free to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Insight. We'll see you next time on the I Believe podcast.